Pure Experience and Reality, a Disclaimer, by John Dewey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pure Experience and Reality, a Disclaimer, by John Dewey. It is hard to judge how far it is advisable to enter into a controversial discussion in reply to criticism. Observation of its usual course tends to the conclusion that the time devoted to it might ordinarily better be spent upon independent analysis or construction. And if one's original writings, put forth without controversial entanglements, are so awkwardly phrased as to provoke serious misunderstanding, why give the philosophic brethren additional cause for offense? But silence gives assent, and may propagate misunderstanding in minds hitherto innocent. Moreover, Professor McGilvery's misconception of my position, as he sets it forth in the May number of this review, under the caption of Pure Experience and Reality, volume 16, pages 266 to 284, is so extreme that, to some extent, it may be categorically dealt with. 1. He refers to me as among those who hold that the reality of anything is the reality it has as experienced and only when experienced. Page 266, italics mine. And again, no contemporaneous experience, no reality. Page 274. I do not hold, never have held, and to the best of my knowledge and belief have never intimated nor implied any such views. That experience means experienced things, that all philosophic conclusions are to be drawn from the things as experienced, not from the concept of experience, which I have held to be purely empty, excepting as indicating a method of procedure and recourse, that things are what they are experienced as, or experienced to be, I have asserted. The only when in the quotation has no standing in anything I have written, and books, chairs, geological ages, etc., are experienced, so far as I am aware, as existent at other times than the moment when they are experienced. Does not Professor McGilvery experience them as that sort of thing, to be that sort of thing? 2. The question raised in the paper upon which Professor McGilvery bases his criticism is, granting the existence of things prior to experiencing organisms, what is the better index for philosophy of reality, its earlier or its later form? These words are in the original text and are quoted by Professor McGilvery himself. That is to say, shall philosophy build its interpretation of reality upon reality as existent prior to its experience, or upon the reality of that as now experienced? The answer given is in the latter sense, that the earlier, say, Eozoic geological age, is experienced as the condition of a present experience which expresses reality more adequately, for philosophy, not for science, than the conception of it as merely pre-existent. This may be a false conception, but it is a totally different idea from that to which Professor McGilvery devotes much poetry, eloquence, and humor. How could it be a condition of the present experience unless it existed prior in time? But Professor McGilvery is so well aware that the prior existence of one thing to another thing in time leaves entirely untouched the question of the nature of the reality of time, and hence of the reality for philosophy, of the temporal sequence, that I do not understand the satisfaction he gets from writing, as if I were totally ignorant of this rudimentary distinction. Moreover, 
if the doctrine be false, it is still one that Professor McGilvary himself holds. He writes, no experience somewhere and some when, no meaningful reality anywhere and any time. This is the truth which is contained in Professor Dewey's contention. H. 274, Italics Mine. I should say it was the only truth for which I contended. My enjoyment, accordingly, of the ludicrous position in which Professor McGilvery places the pure empiricist with me as corpus vile is heightened by the fact that, in view of his expressed agreement, I can stand the joke, if he can. 3. Professor McGilvery quotes from me, The present experience of the veriest unenlightened ditch-digger does philosophic justice to the earlier reality, whose existence he charges me with denying, in a way which the scientific statement does not and cannot, cannot, that is, as formulated knowledge. Page 273, Italics Mine. Unfortunately for his logic, though doubtless fortunately for his humor and poetic metaphor, he fails to quote or take into account the next sentence, which runs as follows. As itself vital or direct experience, the latter is more valuable and is truer in the sense of worth more for other interpretations. The pointed issue is not in the least whether the experience creates the things known, but whether the scientific formula as such or the direct vital experience as such is, for the philosopher, a better index of the nature of reality, it being expressly declared that a direct experience which includes the scientific formulation is better than one which does not. When Professor McGilvery himself comes out strongly for the representative character of knowledge, he seems to be again in favor of my contention that a direct experience is a better index for philosophy than the knowledge phase as such of an experience. But perhaps only the erring empiricist holds that direct is better than merely representative experience. If so, I am still content to err, and shall abide by my conviction that an experience in which a symbol is experienced in its fulfillment or embodiment is better than one in which the symbol alone is experienced, just as it is also better than one which remains as yet unrepresentative. And there are certain echoes from one Hegel, who held that the mediation finds its fruition in a new immediacy, which I hope still also reaches the ears of Professor McGilvery. Or, Professor McGilvery refers to studies in logical theory as follows. In that work, he, i.e., the present writer, insisted that the object of thought, when it has emerged from the experience of stress and strain and appears in a subsequent tranquil experience as the result of pragmatic adjustment, must not be read back anachronistically into the time preceding the adjustment. The reader was therefore left to infer that no truth made out by intellectual labor, is to be held valid of anything real that may have existed before that labor was ended. Page 267, Italics Mine. The reader was not only left to infer this, but the reader who did infer it was left. The point of the contention to which Professor McGilvery refers is the anachronism of referring back the object of thought as characteristically a thought object to reality prior to the thinking. The old-fashioned empiricist held that thinking has no forms or modes of its own at all, being merely a complex of sensations or a disintegration of a prior complex. The epistemological idealist held that such forms or categories not only exist but are characteristic of reality as such, which therefore is to be conceived 
philosophically, as a system of thought relations, that thought as such is constitutive of reality as such. Now, one object of the studies was to insist, as against the sensationalist, that thinking does determine a characteristic objective situation, and against the idealist, that it determines an object in process, through doubt and inquiry, of redetermination. Its purport, in short, is that all thinking is reflective, and that it is constitutive not of reality per se or at large, but only of such reality as has been reorganized through specific thinking, the reorganization finally taking place through an action in which the thinking terminates and by which it is tested. Thought is thus conceived of as a control phenomenon, biological in origin, humane, practical, or moral in import, involving in its issue real transformation of real reality. Hence the text abounds in assertions of reality existing prior to thinking, prior to coming to know, which, through the organic issue of thinking and experimental action, is reconstructed. That it should be possible for a thinker of Professor McGilvery's equipment to say nothing of his command of wit and of the poetry of picturesque and catastrophic metaphor, completely to invert the sense of my writing, even after its obscure and awkward character is taken into account, would be finally discouraging, were it not that I am buoyed up by three considerations. In the first place, he holds that knowledge is by subjective images which acquire a transsubjective reference to the realities to which they subjectively mean to refer. The connection of the intention with the image unfortunately not being elucidated. Hence it would not be surprising if an image of my logical beliefs should spring up in Professor McGilvery's subjective resort for such creatures, which should be totally unlike its object. If such an image were of great aesthetic brilliancy and of an unusually vivacious quality, it might easily impose upon him. Or the image might get switched off during its transsubjective travels, and finally light upon my devoted head, though originally intended, say, for some sensationalistic idealist. It would be obviously unjust to hold Professor McGilvery responsible for such a faux pas on the part of his image after it left him. Again, thinkers who have got habituated to a mode of psychological analysis, which, in the interest of psychology, resolves experience into certain transient acts and states of a person, into sensations and images of a psychophysical organism, may forget that others employ the term experience in a more vital, concrete, and pregnant sense. Hence, when others talk about experience, it is assumed that this means the psychological abstract, which it means to the critic. Finally, modern philosophy has been built up on the foundations of epistemology. That is, it has held that reality is to be reached by the philosopher on the basis of an analysis of the procedure of knowledge. Hence, when a writer endeavors to take naively a frankly naturalistic, biological, and moral attitude, and to account for knowledge on the basis of the place it occupies in such a reality, he is treated as if his philosophy were only, after all, just another kind of epistemology. End of Pure Experience and Reality A Disclaimer by John Dewey